0: You're listening to the free ad-sponsored re-release of American Elections Wicked Game, a weekly march through every presidential election from 1789 to 2024. To listen to all episodes right now ad-free, go to IntoHistory.com. Subscribers there enjoy ad-free listening, early access, bonus content, and more from a growing collection of great history podcasts. Start your free trial today at IntoHistory.com. It's early morning on December 26, 1776, in the middle of a tempestuous snowstorm. Dozens of American soldiers from the 3rd Virginia Regiment have taken up position on the northern edge of Trenton, New Jersey. The previous evening, General George Washington ordered these men across the Delaware River in secret with orders to hold their position. Among them was a young officer. Lieutenant, what is it, Private? We have a problem, sir. It's best you come with me. The soldier quietly leads the lieutenant to the rear of their ranks. A small group of soldiers surround a civilian prisoner on his knees. His mouth is gagged, his hands are bound. This man is a civilian, Private. This man tried to accost us. Who is he? A very profane fellow. He lives in a house just around the way. What's his name? I don't know, sir. Remove the gag. But sir, that's an order, Private. As the Private removes the restraint. what? What's your name, civilian? Dr. Riker. I have a practice in Trenton. Why did you accost these men, doctor? I thought they were redcoats. And why would you think that? The whole town is crawling with Hessians and Brits. Who else would be stalking around in the dead of night, armed to the teeth? They came onto my property, sir. You might have asked them to identify themselves. I did. They refused me. I'm sorry for the inconvenience, but I assure you, we have no interest in disturbing you or your home. We are Americans. Americans? Americans? Why didn't you say so? Are you marching on Trenton? I'd love nothing more to see those Hessian bastards get what's coming to them. My men will escort you home, Doctor. In the interest of your safety, please remain inside. If something is to happen tonight, then I am going with you. I'm afraid that's out of the question. I won't take no for an answer. Sir, please, I am a doctor. If you were to take the fight to the Hessians, I might be able to help some poor fellow." I have food and provisions as well. If you will allow me, I will happily distribute them to you and your men before the fight. The young lieutenant sizes up the doctor for a moment. Uh, Unbind his hands. Release him. As the soldiers free his hands, the lieutenant helps the doctor to his feet. Thank you, Dr. Riker. Thank you, lieutenant. I promise you, sir, you will not regret this. At 8 a.m. on the morning of December 26th, Third Virginia Regiment set upon the British allied Hessian forces at Trenton, New Jersey. The surprise attack was a stroke of tactical genius orchestrated by General George Washington. The night before, Washington had ordered one of his captains to take 50 men across the Delaware River to be the tip of the spear. A brave young lieutenant, not 18 years old, had volunteered to go with them. In the midst of the fight, the lieutenant was shot down by a musket ball that passed through his breast and shoulder. He was carried from the field to a nearby residence where Dr. Riker dressed his wounds and repaired a severed artery in his shoulder. At the Battle of Trenton, Dr. Riker earned his place in the annals of history by saving the life of a young lieutenant and a future president, James Monroe. Wiki Game is sponsored by NetSuite. There's that saying. That's just the cost of doing business. And it makes it sound like there's nothing you can do about certain expenses. And yeah, sure, if you run a business, there are certain things that are just going to cost what they cost. And recently, they've probably begun costing more. But not everything is just the cost of doing business. Smart companies know their numbers and can reduce their costs. One great way of doing both is switching to NetSuite, the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. And with NetSuite, you'll reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessible from anywhere. You'll cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite and you improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math and see how you'll profit with NetSuite this year. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind, flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com elections. That's netsuite.com slash elections, netsuite.com slash elections. Wicked Game is sponsored by BetterHelp. I need to get something off my chest. Think about that phrase. Visualize it. The metaphor is that something is literally on your chest, weighing you down, pressing down upon you, that when you lay in bed at night, there's a heavy burden bearing down on you. And everyone has these weights, deep concerns, feelings of guilt, anger, or misery we try to keep to ourselves. But therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. And as the world's largest therapy service, BetterHelp has matched 3 million people with professionally licensed and vetted therapists available 100% online. Plus, it's affordable. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to match with a therapist. And if things aren't clicking, you can easily switch to a new therapist anytime. No waiting rooms, no traffic. It couldn't be simpler. So get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash elections today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H E L P.com slash elections. From Airship, I'm Lindsey Graham, and this is American Elections Wicked Game. James Monroe wore many hats in his days of public service, Revolutionary War hero, founding father, and public servant. He served as a Virginia senator, the U.S. minister to Great Britain, and the governor of Virginia. During the War of 1812, Monroe served as Secretary of State and Secretary of War simultaneously. His leadership helped bring about victory over Great Britain and solidified his status as President Madison's heir apparent. In the election of 1816, Monroe was elected the fifth president of the United States, the last founding father to serve in the office of the presidency. His victory ushered in what would later be called the era of good feelings. By 1816, the Federalist Party was nearly extinct. Republicans dominated national politics and set the stage for Monroe's victory in the election of 1820, the last uncontested presidential election in American history. But in many respects, The era of good feelings was a misnomer. If it was a period of one-party dominance, it was also not strictly a period of national unity. During his first term, President Monroe faced a devastating economic depression, a moral crisis over the issue of slavery and a deeply divided Republican party. This is episode nine, 1820, A Good Run. It's March 3rd, 1817, in the House chamber. In between sessions, Senator James Barber of Virginia makes a private appeal to House Speaker Henry Clay of Kentucky. Barber is on official Senate business to ask Clay if the House chamber might be used for the inauguration of President-elect James Monroe. No, Senator. Mr. Speaker, let's at least discuss this. You have my answer. Did you read the details of my proposal? Of course I did. You wish to use the House chamber tomorrow for Mr. Monroe's ceremony. That's all we ask. No, that is not all you ask. You also ask that the House furniture be rearranged. Yes, temporarily. Additionally, you ask that the so-called fine red chairs of the Senate be moved into this chamber for the occasion. It's a reasonable request. Reasonable or not, my answer stands. Mr. Speaker, please. I don't need to remind you that the Senate, as a body, does not have the right to regulate the hall of the House of Representatives. Mr. Speaker, we do not wish to regulate the hall, nor does the Senate have the right to arrange the furniture thereof, nor do you have the right to introduce other furniture into it without the express concurrence of the members of the House. Mr. Speaker, the red chairs will be promptly removed and the hall restored to its original condition, I assure you. As I said, you have my answer. <laughs> Sir, is, is this about the ceremony or is this about something else? Clay knows exactly what Barbara is suggesting. Clay isn't upset about furniture, he's upset with James Monroe for not appointing him Secretary of State. But he dodges the question. Senator Barber, I have no doubt that the members of the House would be well pleased if the Senate should, on tomorrow, attend in this representative's hall the contemplated ceremony. The furniture of this House, such as it is, is very much in your service. Perhaps, Mr. Speaker, you prefer the inauguration ceremony be held out of doors. That is entirely up to the President. Good day, Senator. Henry Clay wanted to be president after James Monroe. He believed, perhaps rightly, that the clearest path to the White House was through the State Department. Jefferson, Madison, and Monroe had all served as Secretary of State. When President-elect Monroe gave the position to John Quincy Adams, Clay felt snubbed. He retaliated by stubbornly refusing the Senate's request. So the following day, on March 4, 1817, James Monroe took the oath of office outside In the open air in front of the Capitol, Henry Clay did not attend. For President Monroe, the era of good feelings was off to a rocky start. In his inaugural speech, James Monroe laid out his presidential priorities. Growing the economy, building up the military, and uniting the country. For Monroe, it would be a tall order. At the time of his inauguration, he faced a divided Democratic-Republican party. His party, commonly called the Republicans, were split into factions. Henry Clay and the Warhawks had risen to political prominence by advocating for the War of 1812 and basking in the glory of the perceived U.S. victory. The New Republicans, a group of pro-Monroe political moderates, supported Madison and Monroe's embrace of Federalist policies, like protective tariffs, a strong military, and a second bank of the United States. Conversely, the Tertium Quids, sometimes called the Old Republicans, resented Madison and Monroe for their move towards Federalist policies. But in 1816, the Federalist Party was on its last leg, in large part because of the anti-war posture they had taken during the War of 1812. In December of 1814, Federalists from New England had met in secret in Hartford, Connecticut, They discussed, among other things, the possibility of seceding from the Union. Less than a week later, the war had come to an end. And when it was revealed the Federalists were not only anti-war, but potentially secessionists, the political blowback had been so severe that the Federalist Party had not even put forward a national candidate to run against Monroe. But even if Monroe had adopted some Federalist policies, he did not forget their disloyalty. He largely excluded Federalist politicians from the government but he did not turn his back on the people. Determined to unite the country, Monroe set out on a tour of the U.S. He started in the Federalist hotbed of New England. James Monroe's journey began in the early summer of 1817. The tour was not supposed to be a big to-do. Monroe hoped to be discreet, to make the journey as if he were a private citizen. He wanted to meet the people and quietly inspect U.S. defenses along the East Coast. But on the way to Baltimore... Monroe was met by a massive crowd of well-wishers, citizens, and statesmen. He wrote to Thomas Jefferson, I had, therefore, the alternative of either returning home or complying with the opinion of the public, and immediately I took the latter course. Monroe traveled by steamboat, horse, and coach across New England, from Washington to Baltimore to Philadelphia to New York, and then eventually west to the Great Lakes. Along the way, he was met with parades, processions, booming cannons, banquets, and thousands of adoring fans. When Monroe stopped in Trenton, New Jersey, he visited the spot where he had once taken a bullet for his country. Hundreds of soldiers, veterans of the Revolutionary War, were there to greet him. The soldiers saluted Monroe as he passed them by. The president, dressed simply in the old style of the Revolution, shook hands with each and every one of them. In the summer of 1817, the New Haven Herald wrote of the tour, It was not the sound of artillery, the ringing of bells, nor the splendid processions. It was the pride and satisfaction with which the Americans paid the voluntary tribute of respect to the ruler of their own choice. The demon of party for a time departed and gave place for a general burst of national feeling. But the burst of national feeling would be short-lived. In February of 1819, there was a crisis brewing over the issue of slavery, and it would threaten to tear the country apart. The conflict would hang on the state of Missouri. On February 13, 1819, New York Congressman James Tallmadge introduced an amendment to restrict slavery in Missouri as a condition of its pending statehood. The amendment also called for the emancipation of all children of slaves at the age of 25. The ensuing debates in the House were heated. Congressman Thomas Cobb of Georgia chided Talmadge, You have kindled a fire which all the waters of the ocean cannot put out, which seas of blood can only extinguish. Talmage responded in kind, If a dissolution of the Union must take place, let it be so. If civil war, which gentlemen so much threaten, must come, I can only say, let it. Southerners largely opposed the Talmadge Amendment on constitutional grounds, arguing that the federal government had no authority to place restrictions on the admission of states. Northerners argued that the provisions of the Northwest Ordinance, created in 1787 under the Articles of Confederation, demanded that the government halt the expansion of slavery. The House passed the Talmadge Amendment, but it was struck down in the Senate. Though the bill died, the question of how to admit Missouri, with or without slavery, remained unanswered by the 15th Congress. They would leave the question in the hands of the next Congressional Assembly. Monroe would write of the crisis, I have never known a question so menacing to the tranquility and even the continuance of our union. All other subjects have given way to it. All other subjects, that is, except the economy. In the spring of 1819, President Monroe was faced with another crisis that demanded his attention. After the War of 1812, America's economy experienced a post-war boom. For the first time in American history, economic luxuries were readily available. There was a bank in nearly every town. Consumer credit was easy to come by. Down payments were low. Real estate purchases were on the rise. But the widespread economic prosperity hid serious financial problems looming on the horizon. The Panic of 1819, as it would come to be called, burst the bubble of post-war prosperity... And brought the American economy to its knees. The Panic of 1819 was arguably the first major peacetime depression in U.S. history. There were many factors involved, from the collapse of the export market to cheap imports crippling America's nascent industrial economy. But one of the primary causes was the Second Bank of the United States. Chartered in 1816 under President Madison, the Second Bank had given out far too much credit for land purchases and new settlements, primarily in the South and West. Overextended, the second bank reversed course in 1819, restricting credit and calling in their loans. Banks collapsed. Unemployment soared. A wave of bankruptcies, business failures, and foreclosures swept across the nation. Total property values in New York would fall from $315 million in 1818 to $256 million in 1820 nearly a 20% drop in just two years. Land values in Pennsylvania would drop from $150 an acre in 1815 to just $35 in 1819. In cities like Philadelphia and Boston, thousands of citizens were locked away in debtors' prisons. In New York, there were as many as 8,000 financially insolvent citizens, or paupers as they were called. In 1820, that number would increase to 13,000. As president, there was little Monroe could do. In his time, the primary job of the federal government was to collect taxes and defend the country. The power to change economic policy did not belong to the president. It belonged to the states and the Second Bank of the United States. But if the country was in a panic, Monroe was not. He believed the crisis would only be temporary and that the U.S. would bounce back in due time. Still, in December of 1819, the outcome was uncertain at best. And as the panic raged on, so did friction inside his cabinet. In the interest of national unity, Monroe had tried to put together a cabinet that reflected regional diversity. He had appointed John Quincy Adams of Massachusetts Secretary of State, John C. Calhoun of South Carolina Secretary of War, the role of Treasury Secretary he gave to William Crawford of Georgia. Crawford had been Monroe's main competition in the election of 1816, and there was no love lost between them. But in spite of their differences, Monroe had kept Crawford on. It would be a decision Monroe would live to regret, because in the country's hour of crisis, Monroe would turn to Crawford, his treasury secretary, for help. What he would receive in return was nothing less than betrayal. Did you know you can skip ads and promos like these and listen to all episodes of American Elections Wiki Game without interruption by subscribing at IntoHistory.com? And not only will you be getting the whole series ad-free and bingeable, but you also get access to over a dozen more incredible history podcasts also ad-free, like Her Half of History. Because even though Hillary Clinton may not have made history when she ran for president in 2016, there have always been women who seized power, spied for their country, created artistic masterpieces, even escaped slavery. Her half of history is perfect for all those who sat in history class and wondered, what were the women doing all this time? Because the answer is a lot. Get Her Half of History, Wicked Game, and many others ad-free at IntoHistory.com. Subscribe now at IntoHistory.com. Tired of ads and promos like these? Want to skip ahead to newer elections? You can listen to all episodes of American Elections Wiki Game without interruption by subscribing at IntoHistory.com. But not only that, you also get access to over a dozen more incredible history podcasts, also all ad-free. That includes the American Revolution Podcast, a deep and thorough investigation of the times, people, and politics behind America's fight for independence. Also, the battles, because we can't start a new American nation without guns. And the American Revolution Podcast tells the story of the revolution from beginning to end, from its origins in the French and Indian War, through the war itself, and on to the founding of the United States. Get American Elections Wicked Game, the American Revolutions Podcast, and many others ad-free with bonus content at IntoHistory.com. Com. Subscribe now at intohistory.com. In December of 1819, in his annual message to Congress, Monroe advocated for protective tariffs, imploring Congress to give encouragement to U.S. industries. In his message, he included a summary of public finances prepared by Treasury Secretary Crawford. Crawford's projected numbers painted an optimistic picture. Monroe informed Congress that the U.S. would end the following year well in the black. But this was nowhere near the truth, and Monroe did not know it. Crawford did. In a separate report to Congress, Crawford predicted a $5 million deficit, but withheld this information from Monroe. Monroe was deeply embarrassed at the public inconsistency. Still, he accepted the simple explanation. Crawford had made an honest mistake. Monroe's Secretary of State, John Quincy Adams, saw it differently, though. He saw it as sabotage. Adams wrote, Every act and thought of Crawford looks to the next presidency. Crawford went to work, slashing the budget, especially national defense. Crawford knew he couldn't beat James Monroe in 1820, but he could position himself as the savior of the financial crisis. By cutting the military, he was also weakening his main competition for the 1824 election— War Secretary John C. Calhoun. In the absence of an opposition party, the Republicans look poised to tear each other apart. As John Quincy Adams wrote, as the old line of demarcation between parties has broken down, personal has taken the place of principled opposition. The personal friends of the president are neither so numerous nor so active nor so able as his opponents. But as 1819 came to an end, William Crawford wasn't Monroe's biggest political problem the issue of Missouri once again found its way to the center of national politics. The question of slavery in Missouri would upend the status quo, divide the Republican Party along regional lines, and threaten to deprive James Monroe of a second term. On its face, the question of Missouri was a referendum on the morality of slavery. But it was also a question about which region would hold the reins of power in America. Since the ratification of the Constitution in June of 1788, population growth in the North had drastically outpaced the South. By 1819, the population of free states was over 5 million, with 105 House votes. The population of slave states was roughly 4.5 million, with only 81 House votes. For the South, this population imbalance made gaining power in the Senate especially important. Because by the end of 1819, there existed in the Senate an even balance between free and slave states. Southern states had a vested interest in Missouri being admitted as a slave state in order to gain a one-state advantage in the Senate. The North had a vested interest in blocking additional slave states, or at the very least maintaining the status quo. Because for 20 years, the vice president had been from a Northern state, giving Northern interests the tie-breaking vote in the Senate. So then, in the winter of 1819, the 16th Congress would pick up where the 15th had left off. But before the Congress could answer the question of Missouri, they would have to tackle a separate question over the admittance of a completely different state, Maine. It's December 30th, 1819, on the floor of the House of Representatives. The chairman of the Committee of the Whole brings the proceedings to order. As to the admission of the state of Maine into the Union, the bill is recorded as follows. As the chairman reads the particulars of the bill, Massachusetts Representative John Holmes, a Maine resident, gets ready for his big moment. For years, Mainers like Holmes have doggedly pursued their independence from Massachusetts. Now finally, the issue is on the floor of Congress. When the chairman concludes, Holmes takes the floor. Mr. Chairman, I hereby request that the members of the committee do rise and report the bill for the admittance of Maine as a state. But the Speaker of the House, Henry Clay, bellows from the front of the chamber. Mr. Holmes, I am not yet prepared for this question. Mr. Speaker, Maine has concluded all requirements necessary to be admitted as a state. I'm not opposed to the admission of the state of Maine into the Union, Mr. Holmes. The intelligence of her people, the extent of her territory, her separation from old Massachusetts, all concur to recommend the proposed measure. Only before this measure is acted upon, I wish to know whether certain doctrines of, a, of an alarming character with respect to a restriction of admission into the United States west of the Mississippi were to be sustained on this floor. Holmes knows exactly what Clay means by doctrines of an alarming character. He means slavery restrictions for the state of Missouri. Mr. Speaker, for 20 years, the people of Maine have struggled to gain their independence from Massachusetts. I must remind the gentlemen of the House The terms of our separation agreement require that Congress admit Maine before March 3rd. If not, the whole proceeding which has taken place is void, and the question would be referred back to Massachusetts. Will anyone here say we ought not to be admitted into the Union? It seems we are answered, and yet you are demanding that unless we agree to admit Missouri into the Union unconditionally, Maine ought not to be admitted? I hope the doctrine did not extend quite as far as that. It did, sir. The issues of Maine and Missouri are wholly unconnected. As to the question of slavery, I know of no difference between the rights of a slave and the rights of the white man. As to the question of slavery's restriction, I would forfeit the chance of Maine rather than forfeit my opinion on the subject. I certainly hope the gentleman from Kentucky does not wish to place the question of Maine on that footing. But in late December, 1819, Holding Maine hostage was exactly what Henry Clay had in mind. Clay did tie Maine and Missouri together in order to bring pro-restriction Northerners to the negotiating table. In the end, his plan would work. In December of 1819, the House passed the Maine Acceptance Bill. Taking their cues from Henry Clay, the Senate promptly killed the bill and insisted on linking the fate of Maine to Missouri. It was a deft political move that forced both sides to the negotiating table. In the early spring of 1820, after weeks of heated debate, Illinois Senator Jesse Thomas proposed a new amendment, known as the Thomas Proviso, that would prohibit slavery not just in Missouri, but in all the rest of the Louisiana Purchase lying north of the 36-degree, 32nd parallel. The Thomas Proviso would be the keystone of what would come to be known as the Missouri Compromise. Throughout the spring of 1820, President Monroe had largely stayed away from the argument over the Missouri crisis. He did so even as he continued his tour of the United States and journeyed into the South, the hotbed of pro-slavery sentiment. With the exception of John Adams, every U.S. president prior to 1820 had been a slave owner. James Monroe, like Washington, Jefferson, and Madison before him, owned dozens of slaves, Also like his predecessors, Monroe had acknowledged slavery as an evil on multiple occasions. He had once written, The God who made us made the black people, and they ought not to be treated with barbarity. Yet his personal reservations did not prevent him from engaging in and profiting from the practice of slavery. So for James Monroe, the Thomas Proviso was not a moral question. It was political. On the question of Missouri, his party was divided along regional lines and that division threatened to hurt his chances in the election of 1820. Monroe's supporters in the North assured him that the Thomas Proviso was the only way the slavery question could be resolved on peaceful terms. A veto was unimaginable. To his supporters in the South, the opposite was true. The bill had not yet landed on Monroe's desk, and already the cries of veto were growing in the South. Nowhere were those cries louder than in Monroe's home state of Virginia. The members of the Virginia caucus gathered in early February 1820 to nominate presidential electors. All signs pointed to them supporting Monroe, but after the Thomas Proviso, Virginia began to sing a different tune. When Virginia caucus members received word that Monroe was inclined towards the Proviso, they abandoned the caucus and walked out, refusing to nominate electors. Henry St. George Tucker, a prominent Virginia lawyer, wrote to Virginia Senator James Barber, explaining that the Thomas Proviso was a non-starter. In the letter, Tucker asked Barber whether the Proviso had been proposed as a means of securing Monroe's re-election. Tucker wrote, We are unwilling to purchase his service at such a price, still less willing to support him if he can, with a view to his own election, surrender the valuable rights of the South. Monroe was not blind to the potential blowback in his home state. To his son-in-law, George Hay, Monroe wrote, If the legislators prefer anyone else, let them declare it. But Hay never showed the Virginia caucus Monroe's angry letter. Instead, he went to great lengths to show the caucus members other documents that painted Monroe in a more favorable light. In response to the growing pressure from Virginia, Monroe contemplated a veto. As he mulled over the decision, his son-in-law, George, wrote to Monroe again, suggesting that if he did plan to sign the bill, he should wait till after the caucus finished their work. Monroe did just that. He wrote a letter to Dr. Charles Everett, a former member of the Virginia House of Delegates. In the letter, Monroe assured Everett that he would do everything in his power to fight the restriction of slavery, even to the hazard of the Union. The Virginia caucus took Monroe at his word. On February 17, 1820, the caucus reconvened and nominated a full slate of pro-Monroe electors. But Monroe would not make good on his promise. Two weeks later, in early March 1820, the Thomas Proviso passed the House and Senate. On March 6th, Monroe signed it into law. Monroe betrayed the interests of his own state and used duplicity to secure their electoral votes. In the minds of many, with Virginia in his back pocket, Monroe was unbeatable. Still, there were at least two states determined to put up a fight, New York and Pennsylvania. Did you know you can skip ads and promos like these and listen to all episodes of American Elections Wicked Game without interruption by subscribing at IntoHistory.com? And not only will you be getting the whole series ad-free and bingeable, but you also get access to over a dozen more incredible history podcasts, also all ad-free, like Wild West Extravaganza, a journey back to the fascinating, tumultuous, and often violent world of the American Old West. From famous outlaws like Billy the Kid and Jesse James to lawmen like Wyatt Earp and Wild Bill Hickok to trailblazing pioneers and frontiersmen, Wild West Extravaganza tells the true stories of the real-life characters who shaped this iconic era. So saddle up and discover the true history of the American frontier, the good, the bad, and the ugly, ad-free at IntoHistory.com. How do you solve a crime in reverse when you believe that someone was murdered but have no clue who the victim was? We have to do our job, and we have to find out who did they kill, if it's possible. How are we going to do that? I'm Jake Halpern, and this is Deep Cover, The Nameless Man. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. By 1820, New York was the most populous state in the Union, with over one million citizens. But the Virginia dynasty, from Jefferson to Madison to Monroe, had been in power for 20 years, and New York was ready to take its place as the most influential state in the nation. 1820s New York was divided into two political groups, supporters of Governor DeWitt Clinton and a pro-Monroe group called the Bucktail Faction, led by future President Martin Van Buren. On the national political scene, DeWitt Clinton had been a persona non grata ever since he teamed up with Federalists and ran against James Madison in the election of 1812. Still, he maintained popularity in his home state of New York. There, Governor DeWitt Clinton openly accused Monroe of using the presidency to squash his gubernatorial campaign for reelection in 1820. The two men disagreed on a number of policy issues, not the least of which was slavery. Clinton waged a war against Monroe in the press, defining his campaign on the slavery question. Pro-Clinton newspapers sought to give New Yorkers a clear choice. Monroe, the pro-slavery ticket. Clinton, the anti-slavery ticket. But in the end, Clinton's cause was hopeless. The Monroe bucktail ticket decisively won the vote in the State Assembly and the State Senate, giving New York's electoral votes to James Monroe. But there was still Pennsylvania... In 1820, William Duane, the editor of Philadelphia's Aurora newspaper, published a series of attacks against Monroe. An anonymous correspondent named Brutus, perhaps Duane himself, described Monroe as an immoral man whose wealth derived from the sweat and blood of his slaves. Brutus accused Monroe of corruption and attacked the president for not doing enough to pull the country out of the economic crisis. In October of 1820, a public meeting was held in Philadelphia to nominate pro-Clinton electors. According to the Aurora, the attendees, mostly Quakers, were run out of the hall by Monroe supporters who railed in all the riot and frenzy of a drunken frolic. For Brutus, the mandate was clear. A vote for Monroe was a vote for these monsters, and it was also a vote for slavery. Clinton supporters tried to drum up support with the remnants of Pennsylvania's Federalist Party. Pennsylvania Federalists were a receptive audience, as they had already publicly declared they would not support any candidate for president or vice president who owned slaves or showed sympathy to the South during the Missouri crisis. But in the end, as it was in New York, the opposition to Monroe proved futile. Monroe decisively beat Clinton all across the state. In Philadelphia, as an example, Monroe won the electoral vote over Clinton 1,233 to 793. In Washington, in April of 1820, a congressional caucus convened to select the national candidates for president and vice president. Only 50 of the 191 members of Congress showed up. The turnout was so small, the congressional caucus declined to make a nomination. Perhaps it was the rainstorm raging outside, or perhaps it was a lack of interest, or perhaps there was another reason. American voters had increasingly grown weary of the caucus system, known as King Caucus, long the customary mode of nominating candidates. As the editor of a Baltimore newspaper put it, Nominations are necessary. I think they have been necessary and may be so again. It is to be hoped, though, that they will not be made by members of Congress. This growing anti-caucus sentiment would reach its apex in the upcoming election of 1824. But this election, of 1820, was the third and last presidential election in United States history in which a candidate ran effectively unopposed. Washington had run unopposed in the elections of 1789 and 1792. Washington had also been elected unanimously. Monroe, in 1820, was deprived of that honor, winning 231 of 232 electoral votes. 61-year-old William Plumer, a Republican from New Hampshire, cast his vote for John Quincy Adams. Though some historians claim Plumer denied Monroe a unanimous election because he wanted to reserve that honor for George Washington, Other historians argue the reason is more likely that Plumer, like many across the country, disapproved of the Monroe administration. Plumer had been especially critical of Monroe's response to the Panic of 1819. Under Monroe's administration, taxes went down, but expenses went up, and so did the national debt. Plumer had written, Of the ways and means to supply an exhausted treasury, an object at this time of vast importance, our president is silent. Monroe's detractors had disapproved of his opposition to internal improvements and his failure to support a tariff increase. In the North, he had been criticized for not being vocal in his support of the Thomas Proviso. In the South, he had been criticized for not vetoing the measure. But even if all Monroe's detractors had united together, Monroe likely still would have won the election. Even so, his sweeping electoral victory hid a growing discontent in the electorate and a widening division inside the Republican Party. John Quincy Adams had predicted as much, writing, As the first presidential term of Mr. Monroe's administration has hitherto been the period of the greatest national tranquility enjoyed by this nation at any portion of its history, so it appears to me scarcely avoidable that the second term will be among the most stormy and violent. It's winter in Washington, in the final weeks of Monroe's tenure in the White House. President Monroe sits at his desk, poring over memos and important dispatches. Monroe is in the twilight of his presidency, but the burdens of the office are as heavy as ever. The work never stops. Neither do the never-ending stream of visitors knocking on his door. Come in. Mr. President. Uh, Secretary Crawford. That's Treasury Secretary William Crawford. And it's clear to Monroe from the tone of his voice that he's not happy. May I come in? By all means, have a seat. What can I do for you, sir? Mr. President, I submitted to you a list of several persons for your consideration. Nominees to the Customs Office of the Northern Ports, yes. Yes, indeed, that's correct. I also recall I submitted to you my reply. Yes, sir, that is precisely why I'm here. You have objections, it seems. Objections I've thoroughly detailed in my response to you, Mr. Secretary. Crawford places his list of names on the President's desk. With respect, sir, I believe my list deserves further consideration. With respect, Mr. Secretary, I have given your list all the consideration it shall ever have. Will that be all? Crawford gathers up his piece of paper, his face red with anger. If you will not appoint the names of my list, at least tell me whom you intend to appoint. That is none of your business, sir. Then I shall find out, and I shall do everything in my stead to block their paths of power. You are dismissed, Mr. Crawford. Crawford blows his top. He violently raises his cane in the air and makes for the president. You damn scoundrel! Mr. Crawford, I order you to leave these premises at once. I will not leave this room till my request is granted. You will not? Monroe grabs a pair of red-hot tongs from the nearby fireplace. You will leave this room now, sir, or I will thrust you out. There's a tense standoff. As Crawford grips his weapon tightly, the reality of the moment sets in he is one breath away from assaulting the President of the United States. Prudence overtakes his rage. Crawford loosens his grip on the cane and lets it drop to his side. He gathers his senses and musters a meek apology. <sighs> Forgive me, Mr. President. I, I did not mean to insult you or threaten you. Monroe places the tongs back in the fireplace and approaches Crawford calmly. Well, if you are indeed sorry, Let it pass. Monroe offers Crawford his hand. Crawford takes it, and they part ways. Crawford would never again visit Monroe's White House, and the two would never see each other or speak again. A violent conflict between the president and his treasury secretary was narrowly avoided. But their nearly bloody confrontation was the symbolic end of the so-called era of good feelings. The election of 1824 would bring about the end of several American institutions. It would signal the end of the Democratic-Republican Party, the death of the first two-party system, and the demise of the electoral caucus system known as King Caucus. In keeping with precedent, President Monroe would not stand for a third term. But the election of 1824 would be an unprecedented contest, with a crowded field of five candidates, three from Monroe's cabinet, as well as the Speaker of the House, and a war hero. In the absence of a clear electoral majority, for the second time in American history, the President would be chosen by the House of Representatives. But for the first time in American history, the candidate with the most popular votes would not win the election. In the end, John Quincy Adams would secure the White House with a little help from what his enemies would call the Corrupt Bargain. This is Episode 9 of American Election's Wicked Game, 1820, A Good Run. On the next episode, the election of 1824, as five political titans compete for the White House, backroom deals are struck, alliances are broken, and lifelong enemies are gained. If you're a careful Wicked Game listener, you know in the credits I mentioned my friend Professor Greg Jackson and his podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. It's a great show. But one way it can doesn't suck even more is when you listen to it without ads. You can listen to all episodes of American Election's Wicked Game, all episodes of History That Doesn't Suck, and all episodes of many more great history podcasts without interruption by subscribing at IntoHistory.com. History That Doesn't Suck is a deeply researched chronological survey of American history from a trained academic who also knows how to tell a story. Plus, in addition to ad-free listening to one of the best American history podcasts out there, you get scores of bonus episodes at IntoHistory.com. Subscribe now at IntoHistory.com. This episode contains reenactments and dramatized details. And while in most cases we can't know exactly what was said, all our dramatizations are based on historical research. American Elections Wicked Game is an airship production, hosted, edited, and executive produced by me, Lindsey Graham. Sound designed by Derek Behrens. Music by Lindsey Graham. Co executive produced by Stephen Walters in association with Ritual Productions. Written and researched by Steven Walters. Fact-checking by Greg Jackson and C.L. Salazar from the podcast History That Doesn't Suck.